Our scripture lesson tonight comes from the book of Joshua, chapters, starting in chapter 13. I, I have included a map, which you may find it actually as useful to have the map before you as we read, as to have the text open before you. Uh, tonight, may it bit seem like a geography lesson. And that's as it should be, because the middle chapters of the book of Joshua are a geography lesson. But, if you always, if you thought that geography was just about sort of, oh, sort of, that's where the capitals of this, you know, learning, learning the names of the states and their capitals, if you think that's what geography is about, well, I, I have good news for you. This is far more interesting than just, oh, it's a geography lesson. Geography is actually a fascinating subject. So, let's hear the word of the Lord from, starting in Joshua chapter 13. Now, Joshua was old and advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, You are old and advanced in years, and there remains yet very much land to possess. This is the land that yet remains, all the regions of the Philistines and all those of the Geshurites, from the Shihor, which is east of Egypt, northward to the boundary of Ekron. It is counted as Canaanite. There were five rulers of the Philistines, those of Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron, and those of the Avim. In the south, all the land of the Canaanites and Mayara that belongs to the Sidonians, to Aphek, to the boundary of the Amorites, and to the land of the Gabalites, and all Lebanon toward the sunrise, from Baal Gad, below Mount Hermon, to Lebohamath, all the inhabitants of the hill country, from Lebanon to Misrafoth Mayim, even all the Sidonians. I myself will drive them out from before the people of Israel, only allot the land to Israel for an inheritance, as I have commanded you. Now therefore divide this land for an inheritance to the nine tribes and half the tribe of Manasseh. With the other half of the tribe of Manasseh, the Reubenites and Gadites received their inheritance, which Moses gave them beyond the Jordan eastward, as Moses the servant of the Lord gave them, from Aroer, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, and the city that is in the middle of the valley, and all the tableland of Medebah as far as Debom, and all the cities of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon as far as the boundary of the Ammonites." and Gilead, and the region of the Geshurites and Maakathites, and all Mount Hermon, and all Bashan to Saleka, all the kingdom of Og in Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth and in Edre, he alone was re- left of the remnant of the Rephaim, these Moses had struck and driven out. Yet the people of Israel did not drive out the Geshurites or the Maakathites, but Geshur and Maakath dwell in the midst of Israel to this day. To the tribe of Levi alone Moses gave no inheritance, The offerings by fire to the Lord God of Israel are their inheritance, as he said to them. And Moses gave an inheritance to the tribes of the people of Reuben according to their clans. So their territory was from Aroer, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, and the city that is in the middle of the valley, and all the tableland by Medebah, with Heshbon and all its cities that are in the tableland, Dibon and Bamothbal and Beit Baalmeon and Yahaz and Keremoth and Mephaat, and Kiriathayim and Sibmah and Zerashahar on the hill of the valley, and Beit Peor and the slopes of Pisgah and Beit Yeshimoth, that is, all the cities of the tableland, and all the kingdom of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon, whom Moses defeated with the leaders of Midian, Evi, and Rechem, and Zur, and Hur, and Reba, the princes of Sihon, who lived in the land. Balaam, Balaam, also the son of Beor, the one who practiced divination, was killed with the sword by the people of Israel among the rest of their slain. 
And the border of the people of Reuben was the Jordan as a boundary. This was the inheritance of the people of Reuben, according to their clans with their cities and villages. Moses gave an inheritance also to the tribe of Gad, to the people of Gad, according to their clans. Their territory was Yatser and all the cities of Gilead, and half the land of the Ammonites to Aroer, which is east of Rabbah, and from Heshbon to Ramath Mizpah and to Betonim, and from Mahanaim to the territory of Debir, and in the valley Beit Haram, Beit Nimrah, Sukkoth, and Zaphon, the rest of the kingdom of Sihon, king of Heshbon, having the Jordan as a boundary to the lower end of the Sea of Kinnereth, eastward beyond the Jordan. This is the inheritance of the people of Gad, according to their clans, with their cities and villages. And Moses gave an inheritance to the half-tribe of Manasseh. It was allotted to the half-tribe of the people of Manasseh, according to their clans. Their region extended from Mahanaim through all Bashan, the whole kingdom of Og, king of Bashan, and all the towns of Yair, which are in Bashan, sixty cities, and half Gilead and Ashtaroth and Edre, the cities of the kingdom of Og in Bashan. These were allotted to the people of Machir, the son of Manasseh, for the half of the people of Machir, according to their clans. These are the inheritances that Moses distributed in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan, east of Jericho. But to the tribe of Levi, Moses gave no inheritance. The Lord God of Israel is their inheritance, just as he said to them. These are the inheritances that the people of Israel received in the land of Canaan, which Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people of Israel gave them to inherit. Their inheritance was by lot, just as the Lord had commanded by the hand of Moses for the nine and one-half tribes. For Moses had given an inheritance to the two and one-half tribes beyond the Jordan, but to the Levites he gave no inheritance among them. For the people of Joseph were two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim, and no portion was given to the Levites in the land, but only cities to dwell in with their pasture lands for their livestock and their substance. The people of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. They allotted the land." Then the people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal. And Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, in Kadesh Barnea, concerning you and me? I was forty years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought him word again as it was in my heart. But my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt, yet I wholly followed the Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said, these forty-five years, since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses, while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now, behold, I am this day eighty-five years old. I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then, for war and for going and coming." So now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. Then Joshua blessed him and he gave Hebron to Caleb the son of Jephunneh for an inheritance. Therefore Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb the son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite to this day because he wholly followed the Lord the God of Israel. Now the name of Hebron formerly was Kiriath Arba. Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim, and the land had rest from war. The allotment for the tribe of the people of Judah, according to their clans, reached southward to the boundary of Edom, to the wilderness of Zin at the farthest south, 
and their south boundary ran from the end of the Salt Sea, from the bay that faces southward. It goes out southward of the ascent of Akrabin, passes along to Zin, and goes up south of Kadesh Barnea, along by Hezron, up to Adar, turns about to Karka, passes along to Asmon, goes out by the brook of Egypt, and comes to its end at the sea. This shall be your south boundary. And the east boundary is the Salt Sea to the mouth of the Jordan. And the boundary on the north side runs from the bay of the sea at the mouth of the Jordan. And the boundary goes up to Beth Hoglah and passes along north of Beth Arabah. And the boundary goes up to the stone of Bohan, the son of Reuben. And the boundary goes up to Debir from the valley of Achor. And so northward, turning toward Gilgal, which is opposite the ascent of, uh, the ascent of Adumim, which is on the south side of the valley. And the boundary passes along to the waters of En Shemesh and ends at En Rogel. Then the boundary goes up by the valley of the son of Hinnom at the southern shoulder of the Jebusite, that is, Jerusalem. And the boundary goes up to, up to the top of the mountain that lies over against the valley of Hinnom on the west at the northern end of the valley of Rephaim. Then the boundary extends from the top of the mountain to the spring of the waters of Nephtoah and from there to the cities of Mount Ephraim. Then the boundary bends around to Baalah, that is Kiriath-Jearim, and the boundary circles west of Baalah to Mount Seir, passes along to the northern shoulder of Mount Yaram, that is Kesselon, and goes down to Beit Shemesh and passes along by Timnah. The boundary goes out to the shoulder of the hill north of Ekron, then the boundary bends around to Shikaron and passes along to Mount Baalah and goes out to Yabneel. Then the boundary comes to an end at the sea, and the west boundary was the great sea with its coastline. This is the boundary around the people of Judah, according to their clans. According to the commandment of the Lord to Joshua, he gave to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, a portion among the people of Judah, Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, Arba was the father of Anak, and Caleb drove out from there the three sons of Anak, Sheshai and Achiman and Talmai, the descendants of Anak. And he went up from there against the inhabitants of Debir. Now the name of Debir formerly was Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, Whoever strikes Kiriath Sefer and captures it, to him will I give Aksa, my daughter, as wife. And Odniel, the son of Kenaz, the brother of Caleb, captured it. And he gave him Aksa, his daughter, as wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she got off her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you have given me the land of the Negev, give me also springs of water. And he gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. This is the inheritance of the tribe of the people of Judah, according to their clans. The cities belonging to the tribe of the people of Judah in the extreme south, toward the boundary of Edom, were Kabzael, Eder, Yagur, Kinah, Dimona, Adada, Kadesh, Hatzor, Ithnan, Zif, Telem, Bealot, Hatzor, Hadata, Kiriot Hezron, that is Hatzor, Amam, Shema, Molada, Hazar Gada, Cheshmon, Beit Pelet, Hazar Shual, Beersheba, Bizioa, Bizi, Biziothia, Baala, Im, Ezem, Eltolad, Kesil, Horma, Ziklag, Badmana, Sansana, Lebaot, Shilhim, Ain, and Rimon, in all 29 cities with their villages. And in the lowland, Eshtol, Zora, Ashna, Zanoa, Enganim, Tapua, Enam, Yarmuth, Adulam, Soko, Azeka, Sha'arayam, Aditayam, Gedera, Gedarothayam, 14 cities with their villages. Zainan, Hadashah, Migdalgad, Delean, Mizpah, Yokteel, Lakish, Bozkath, Eglom, Kabon, Lamam, Kitlish, Gedaroth, Betagon, 
Naama and Makeda, 16 cities with their villages, Libna, Ather, Ashan, Ifta, Ashna, Nezib, Kela, Akzib, and Marasha, nine cities with their villages, Ekron with its towns and its villages, from Ekron to the sea, all that were by the side of Ashdod with their villages, Ashdod, its towns and villages, Gaza, its towns and villages, to the brook of Egypt and the great sea with its coastline. And in the hill country, Shamir, Yatir, Itzoko, Dana, Kiryasana, that is Debir, Anab, Eshtemoa, Anim, Goshen, Holon, and Gilo, eleven cities with their villages. Arab, Duma, Eshan, Yanim, Beit Tapua, Afeka, Humta, Kiryat Arba, that is Hebron, and Zior, nine villages with their, nine cities with their villages. Maon, Carmel, Zif, Yuta, Yezreel, Yakteam, Zanoa, Kayan, Gibeah, and Timna, ten cities with their villages. Halhul, Beit Zur, Kedor, Ma'arath, Beit Anoth, and Elktakon, six cities with their villages. Kiriath Baal, that is Kiriath Jaram, and Rabbah, two cities with their villages. In the wilderness, Beit Arabah, Midin, Sekaka, Nibshan, the city of salt, and Engedi, six cities with their villages. But the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah could not drive out, so the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. This is the word of the Lord. When I was growing up in California, I learned all about the, the water wars between the various interests, the, the, the cities with their quest for water, not to mention all the agriculture that goes on out in California, the, the Central Valley, the Salad Bowl, all of which were fighting and still are fighting over a decreasing amount of water. Well, many of you have, have heard my prediction that the Great Lakes area will be the next region to experience an economic boom. Why? Because water always wins. We learn that in our text tonight. Without water, what's the use of land? But tonight's geography lesson is not just a matter of secular geography. When Joshua lays out the boundaries of the tribes of Israel, he wants us to see the importance of the land, of the inheritance that God is giving to his son, Israel. It's why I've given you the map for tonight's sermon. The boundaries, the cities named in our text, these were familiar places to those who lived there. They would have walked these paths. They would have known people who lived there. I had a cousin who lived over there. For us, it feels remote. Although, I'm sure as we went through, every once in a while, you heard a, a, a town named, wait a second, you know, there's a town in Indiana called Goshen. <laughs> Many of the town names, after all, why did they call it Goshen? Because of the biblical Goshen. I mean, that's, many of our names have, have echoes here. But it's important for us to remember that like Rahab, uh, for that matter, like Caleb in our story tonight, we have been grafted into Israel so that this becomes our story as well. The inheritance of Joshua's day, after all, prefigures the inheritance that we have received in Jesus. Chapter 13 opens saying that that Joshua is now old and advanced in years. He was already a grown man when they left Egypt. We hear at the beginning in the book of Exodus, after they've just left the land, that Joshua is already a general in the army, leading the armies against their enemies. So after spending 40 years in the wilderness, he's at least in his 70s. 
Caleb's 85 now, and Joshua's probably around the same age. But Joshua is the one who has caused Israel to inherit the land. We saw this was what God had promised back in Joshua chapter 1. He is the servant of the Lord who has brought Israel into their inheritance. But that doesn't mean that the conquest is over. There's a a very real way in which which Joshua's conquest of the land sort of then leaves them with, with, you know, the land is now theirs. They're now dividing the land. But there's a lot of work left to be done. It's actually reminiscent of what Jesus was telling his disciples. That Yeah, it, it, we heard this morning that, that, that yes, he is going to the Father, but he's pouring out his Spirit so that his disciples will do greater works than his. There's a way in which just as Israel is called to keep going forth and taking possession of the land, so also we are called to go forth and take possession of the earth that belongs to Jesus as we bring the gospel of the kingdom to the nations. And verses 2 to 13 describe how unfinished the conquest is. Uh, We had heard last week that Joshua had conquered as far as Gaza. Now, maybe some of you wondered, uh, why didn't the Philistines object? (laughs) Maybe the Philistines caused problems for Israel for centuries. In Joshua's day, actually, there were no Philistines in Joshua's day. There are two likely dates for the Exodus. The early one is in the 1440s, the later one in the 1250s. But either way you put it, the Philistines haven't quite arrived in Canaan yet. Uh, actually, they're the, they're the sea peoples whom the Egyptians are battling kind of as we speak. Uh, the reason why our text makes reference to the Philistines here, all the regions of the Philistines, is because by the time the book of Joshua gets written down, this is the, it's describing these are where the Philistines live. But in Joshua's day, the Philistines are battling along the coast. The Egyptians are trying to fight them off. And it's actually, it's, you know, depending on whether you go early date, later date, but it's a few years later that the Philistines show up and take possession of these, of these cities. At this point, Gaza would have been the Egyptian administrative center where, where Egyptian rule was, was, was organized and, and conducted in the region. So it's not surprising that Joshua goes as far as Gaza. It doesn't say he actually conquered Gaza. Um, it's after the time of Joshua that the Philistines will take over. But essentially what happens is the Egyptians get tired of fighting the sea peoples and say, okay, tell you what. If you want to just take over that coastland area and be a buffer state for us against troubles from the north, fine. Just have that land and leave us alone. And so the Philistines take the five cities, the the Pentapolis as they're known. Um, So when when you look at your map, you can see that the coastal area in the south and west of Judah is not yet in Judah's hands. Uh, Likewise, Joshua did not take the territory of the Sidonians. Uh, these are the people that we know to history as the Phoenicians. This is the north of the land. If you follow the coast up, up all the way to Mount Hermon, the Phoenicians also are, are a people that Joshua doesn't really tangle with. The Sidonians, uh, we'll leave them alone. Uh, part of it is they're not sort of that's they're they're it's easier to start in the hill country, and that's where they start, uh, between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. So the coastal plain is still largely under Egyptian rule. And in fact, many have been puzzled at how come the Egyptians don't make a fuss? 
Well, this is where the providence of God gets really fun. At any other time in ancient history, the Egyptians would not have tolerated this sort of disruption. The Egyptians would have stepped in and brought their big armies and said, we're here, we're, we're here you guys. But this, the beginning of the 12th century is what is sometimes called the Bronze Age Collapse, where every major power in the ancient world suddenly collapses at the same time. And you'd think, well, somebody had to step in the breach. Well, actually, his name was Joshua. Um, The Assyrians and the Babylonians fall apart. The Hittite Empire implodes. Mycenae and Greece, that spectacular civilization that just then withers away into nothing. You've heard of the city of Troy. Well, it fell at this time. The great city of Ugarit. And you're all like, great city of Ugarit? Yeah, there was a great Canaanite city of Ugarit that was, that was wealthy, powerful, famous, had its own language written down. Disappears. All we have left are ruins. Never gets rebuilt. Probably why you never heard of it. <laughs> Even Egypt withdraws to the boundaries of the Nile but with lots of internal troubles and schisms. Historians have puzzled about why did it all happen at this time. That doesn't need to bother us right now, but if you're interested, interested, it's a fun subject. If you have any kids in my junior high history class, ask them. They they know all about the Bronze Age collapse. But, But it just happens to be the moment when God brings his people up out of Egypt and into the Promised Land. There's about a 200-year gap when the mighty powers of the nations are all in a weakened state. And God orchestrates the whole thing to be precisely the time when he will raise up his people, when he will use the weak and foolish things of the world to shame the wise and powerful, so that the blessing of Abraham might come to all the nations of the earth. It's sort of like when you think about in the New Testament, God sends Jesus at just the moment when the Roman Empire has has sort of solidified control of the Mediterranean to allow the most communication and and sort of interaction throughout the Mediterranean region. The Pax Romana was precisely what God used to allow the gospel to spread in a way that would have been a lot more difficult if if, if, if there was a lot of war in that time. But God's plans include everything that happens in history. Oftentimes, all we get in the scripture are, here's, this, here's the, the particular story, but when you see what God was doing all around Israel in, in bringing about this remarkable time when there was room and space for this little kingdom to build in the hill country of, of Canaan, uh, it was remarkable to see what God worked together throughout all of history. And God himself says in verse 6 that I myself will drive out these nations from before the people of Israel. It'll be in my time. And, and by the way, it'll, it'll be another couple hundred years. It'll be David that finally takes, uh, takes possession of, uh, of the whole land and uh, went the way that God had promised. But he says that right now, Joshua is supposed to allot the land to Israel for an inheritance. Okay, so you, you have the, the center of the land. Now it's, so, so now make your divisions of the land, sort of get, get your surveyors out, uh, divide up the land, and then each tribe can go about 
taking possession of its inheritance. Because you've, you've, Joshua has done the bulk of the work. He's done the big work of taking out the, the, bigger, the big armies. Now it's time to go in and take possession of the land, each tribe in its own territory. In verses 8 to 13, we are reminded that the other two and a half tribes had received their inheritance from Moses on the east side of the Jordan. And so it gives the boundaries there. And in verse 13, it's worth noting that, that Gesher and Ma'akath were not driven out. These are independent kingdoms in the middle of Israel that remain for centuries. We, we, we often, we just sort of, we tend to just, oh, Israel took possession of the land. Here in, we, I realize, I totally understand why when you're reading through the Bible and you reach these chapters, you're sort of like, ah, how do I make sense of all this? Who are all the, you glaze over with all these names. But Gesher, and actually one of David's sons, will marry a daughter of the king of Gesher in 2 Samuel 3. And even as late as the time of the exile, the Maacathites were still dwelling in the land in Jeremiah 40. So there are these, these non-Israelite kingdoms that remain in the middle of the land. And it seems as though they are friendly to Israel. They, they, don't, they, they don't seem to cause any trouble. Uh, you don't really find them allying against Israel much. They, they tend to be fairly, sort of like, they, 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 they seem to be sort of very content to let Israel be the, the sort of the, the important people. And the Gesherites and the Maacathites are these just small little kingdoms, just living in the middle of the land, generally submitting to Israel's overlordship. So what's the point of this geography lesson so far? Look around you. The people around you have been placed there by God. They also have a role in his plan of redemption. Indeed, uh, your inheritance in the land is not all about you. You are here to seek first the kingdom of God. And if you need reminders of what this looks like, look at your brothers the Levites. Verse 14. Levi receives no inheritance. Or more precisely, their inheritance is the Lord's offerings. The the priests of Egypt and Babylon were wealthy and powerful. They would control large tracts of land. The priests of Israel will be dependent upon their brothers. The Levites depend upon the faithfulness of Israel for their sustenance. If Israel doesn't bring their offerings, the Levites don't eat. At the same time, the Levites show forth a picture of Israel's future. They inherit the Lord's offerings. They inherit the Lord's own portion. Which, of course, this is what all Israel receives in the New Covenant. It's what we receive in Christ. It's pointing forward to what is to come. Now, verses 15 to 33 of chapter 13, then describe in more detail the inheritance of the eastern tribes, the inheritance of of Reuben along the Dead Sea in between the Arnon River and Heshbon. And Gad then has the central part of the eastern inheritance stretching along the Jordan River up to the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Kinnereth. And then the eastern half of Manasseh consists of the northern half of Gilead along with uh, the former territory of Og, king of Bashan. And then, again in verses 32 and 33, we are told that the tribe of Levi receives no inheritance from Moses. But here, a different reason is given. Because the Lord God of Israel is their inheritance. Why does Joshua add this comment here? Because we need to see 
that Israel's inheritance is not just a piece of real estate in the Middle East. Israel's inheritance is God himself. We, we saw this morning that the, the Old Testament, the, the work of the Holy Spirit tends to be focused on leading and teaching, not as much on the internal, you might say, the work of uncreated grace, God joining us to himself. But that's what the Levites were pointing Israel to. God's purpose for Israel was not just to give them a piece of real estate in the Middle East. God's purpose was to give them Himself. The good gifts of God are designed to show us the greater gift. God Himself is uncreated grace. The land is created grace. The land is good gifts from God. But God Himself is gives us Himself. Now, The next several chapters will chronicle the division of the land by Joshua. So tonight we're just getting started with with the inheritance of Judah. And again, at the beginning of of chapter 14, we hear of how the Levites don't receive a portion. For the third time, we're we're told, Levi does not receive it. But they do receive cities to dwell in. These are the the cities of of refuge uh, and the Levitical cities that God had, had named to Moses. They're scattered throughout Israel. So the pur- and the purpose of this is that all the other tribes will each have their own inheritance. Levi is scattered throughout Israel. Every tribe has a certain number of Levites living in it, a certain number of Levitical cities in that tribe. So the Levites serve to be the sort of what joins all Israel together, reminding them, you're not, you're not 12 different countries here. You're one people and the Levites serve to unite you as one people. And so they come together and they in, in divide the land by lot. It's basically the process of you cast lots to see which, which tribe gets which piece of land. And, but, but before they get started, you, know, you, have, you have Eleazar and, and Joshua and the heads of fathers' houses gathered. Uh, by the way, at the end of chapter 19, the, it will, will be told... This is the, they'll conclude by saying, and here's how Eleazar and Joshua and the heads of fathers' houses divided the land. So chapters 14 through 19 serve are really one big long section. But before they start casting lots, the people come to, to the people of Judah come to Joshua at Gilgal, uh, and, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite, says, oh, remember what Moses said to me. Caleb is one of my favorite characters in, in the Bible. Uh, he's linked here with the tribe of Judah, but we're told very plainly he's a Kenizzite. And you're all going, oh, of course. Yeah, no, who's, what's, what's, a, what's a Kenizzite? Well, back in Genesis 15, 19, God promised to give Abraham, uh, Abraham's seed the land of the Canaanites, and as he listed the various nations that were to be dispossessed, one of which is the Kenizzites. That's Caleb's people. They are to be dispossessed. And now here is a Kenizzite leading the charge for Judah. I hope that by now you are seeing that when God brings judgment upon a nation, he always remembers those who trust in him and gives them a place with his people. Some people have accused the book of Joshua as encouraging racial stereotypes and oppression. 
But if you pay attention to what the book of Joshua actually says, you discover that it undermines any racialized view of the world. Caleb, one of the greatest heroes in the history of the tribe of Judah, wasn't even an Israelite. He was one of the condemned peoples of the land. But Caleb was one who followed the word of the Lord wholeheartedly. He believed God's promises. Forty-five years earlier, when Joshua had sent, uh, when Moses had sent out the twelve spies, Caleb and Joshua were the only two that had held fast to the word of the Lord. So Joshua and Caleb, a Jew and a Gentile, <laughs> held fast to the word of the Lord when the ten other tribe uh, spies and the the people of Israel refused to go into the land. And because of Caleb's faith, the Lord told Moses that Caleb would enter the land and take possession of the land that Caleb himself had spied out, which turns out to be Hebron. For 40 years, for 40 years, Caleb wandered in the wilderness. He used up the prime years of his manhood. Some would say he wasted his manhood just wandering in the wilderness. What did he, what did he ever accomplish? waiting for the day when he would enter the land as an octogenarian. Reminds me of of the story of Theodore of Tarsus. Theodore was a a pastor in Syria who fled from the Muslim invasion and and wound up in Rome. So, around the... he, He finds himself at the age of 65 living in Italy, far from the land of his birth, far from the land of his ministry, You'd think, age 65, living in Italy, you know, I, I don't even, I mean, I, 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 I'm now fluent in Latin, I can get along, but Greek, Syriac, these are my languages. Why am I, what am I doing here? I just retired to a monastery. I'm done. But then came an emissary from England who came asking the Pope would consecrate a new Archbishop of Canterbury, and they had a, a recommended candidate, one of the messengers who then died in Rome. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> so, this, this, this is the year 668. And in 668, uh, to the Romans, England is a very barbaric place, overrun by Germanic tribes, only a few of which have believed the gospel. Who wants to go to England? Who will go and preach the gospel in a place overrun by barbarians? Theodore's like, send me. <laughs> So at the age of 66, he's consecrated Archbishop of Canterbury, travels to the wild frontier, where he starts a a school teaching Greek, his native language. He was pretty good at it. So he spends his 70s and 80s preaching the gospel at the ends of the earth and training up the very first Greek scholars in England, in English history. He finally dies at the age of 88 after having spent 22 years faithfully preaching the gospel, teaching... Actually, there's a whole tradition of biblical scholarship that grows out of Theodore's ministry in England that it's no stretch at all to say that 800 years later, that was very influential in the English Reformation. And and it didn't wait 800 years to have an influence. For 800 years, it was having a powerful influence in the English church. The the Venerable Bede tells his story in his, his ecclesiastical history of the English people. Theodore had the same faith that Caleb did. 85? Yeah, 
Hey, I'm ready for a new challenge. Let me go after those Anakim in, in Hebron. It's the same faith that, that we saw in Rolf Kaler, another man who felt very useless in the prime of his manhood and yet found his purpose in his old age. Now, notice what Caleb asks for. He says, let me go fight the biggest, baddest guys left. You heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me, and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. You can, you can see Theodore doing you know, very much as he's going to England, saying, ah. And so Joshua blessed him and gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, for an inheritance. And you might be thinking, well, wait, wait a second. In chapter 10, we were told that Joshua and his army captured Hebron. Now we're told that Caleb drives out the Anakim from Hebron? Well, remember what we saw last week. What did Joshua do in that first strike? He killed everyone he found, but that assumes that he found them in order, in order to kill them. <laughs> so when, when Joshua does that first strike to the south, he then turns pretty quickly back up to the north and then fights there. And it, does, it says nothing about anybody taking possession of anything. So they, they and, and remember, they're not burning cities, very, only very few get burned, because they're supposed to come back and live in these cities. So it means that basically the army is marching through, fighting whoever will show up. But if you know anything about ancient warfare, a lot of people don't show up. And so, yeah, they go after whoever, the, whoever is available to fight against. They fight them, they destroy whatever they, they and then they go, and then they keep moving on. So, of course, you know, and it's, it's, remember, these are, this is, this is rough terrain. It takes a long time to move armies around. And also, if, he's, if Caleb's 85, that means we're now five years into the conquest. Israel has spent five years doing, fight, fighting their enemies as a combined force. And so, it's now been five years, at least, maybe at least four years, since, uh, since the, the Israelite armies left Hebron area. Well, that means that they're all back now. <laughs> they, they came right back and they're like, hey, our, they didn't burn our city. Okay, so, so sure, it's a, it's a smaller population than it had been. That, and now it's something more manageable for each tribe to go and take the possession of their own territory. But Caleb, so Caleb knows that in order to take possession of Hebron, he will need to go and dispossess them once again. But... Since the great victory was won by Joshua, Caleb goes forth to battle with great confidence, which should sound familiar to us, because Jesus has won the great victory and caused us to inherit eternal life. We go forth to battle knowing that the end of the story is already assured. And we can say with Caleb, eh, it may be that the Lord will be with me, knowing full well that God has promised. And if God has promised, he will do what he has said. Well, chapter 15 then includes the boundaries of the inheritance of Judah. As you can see from the map, Judah has the largest territory, but also the longest and most dangerous boundaries. With the Philistines soon to occupy the coastal plain, Edom to the east and Egypt to the south, it may be a large territory, but they've got their work cut out for them. Also, as I intimated earlier, water will be a problem. The Negev is a dry region, if you know anything of, of Israeli geography today. Uh, much of the hill country is ill-suited for farming. So 
sure, Judah gets a large territory, but the most valuable land in Judah's territory is actually along the coast. And that's going to be contested. Actually, you may have noticed, it gives, it gives the, the cities, of the, the, basically the five cities of the Philistines with their, with their towns and villages, because honestly, we don't really spend much time down there because the Philistines are down there, so we really don't know the names of all those cities. But they give all the names of these little itty-bitty tiny towns. Actually, uh, I was uh, talking with Becca this afternoon, and, and when it says cities... <laughs> Um, a city is a, is a fortified place. So basically, anything that has a wall around it of any sort, you know, just a, it may just be a little stone wall to keep wild animals out, um, that's going to be called a city. There might be 50 people who live in the city. Maybe 50 in some cases. So these are itty-bitty tiny places, little holes in the wall here and there. And, but they're called cities because they have walls of some sort, even if they're just very rough. And then the, the villages would be any sort of houses, encampments sort of around that. And whenever there's, if there's danger from enemies, they'll all run to that little fortified place because that's where you take shelter. But this will also, even though even though Judah gets uh, this mostly hill country, dry, barren place, that will also work out for Judah's advantage later in Israel's history. When you live in a barren hill country, there are a lot of armies who will be content to march north along the coastal plain, march south along the coastal plain, and look up into the hills and go, eh, that's just a waste of time. They go, what, what do they have that we care about? We hear a little more about Caleb in verses 13 to 19. Uh, and this is part of where you see the importance of water in our text. Oatmeal uh, captures Kiriath Safer, and so Uncle Caleb gives him his daughter Aksa as a wife. Now, um, it's, it is quite possible, perhaps even likely, that they are in fact first cousins. It was permitted for first cousins to marry in the Old Testament. But also I should point out that when it says the brother of Caleb, remember that Caleb is a Kenizzite. He's not actually from the tribe of Judah. So how does he get to be part of Judah? Because, after all, when they came up out of Egypt, there were Egyptians that came with them, there were all sorts of this mixed multitude that comes with them. Do they get any inheritance in the land? Well, yes. Because they get joined to whatever tribe they happen to be connected with through as their travels, they're sort of like, oh, so, so Caleb had been kind of hanging out with the guys from Judah, and so, so Caleb is, is, is he the adopted brother? When it says, you know, his, his brother, it doesn't mean necessarily biological brother. It could be adopted brother, basically, because God is bringing all sorts of people together into this really mixed up, interesting group of people <laughs> that gets called Israel, even though it could be as, it could be it could be half I, mean, I, I don't I don't know the number percentage but there's a whole lot of non-Israelites who are part of this story. So when when you start paying careful attention to the details of the biblical text, you start realizing that this this thing called Israel was never an ethnic group. Biological descent from Abraham was never essential to being Israel. How you become Abraham's seed is by believing in Abraham's God. 
verses 20 to 62 give you this, uh, this lengthy description of, of the cities. And, um, and verse 63 concludes by noting that the people of Judah could not drive out the Jebusites from Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem, as we heard in the, in, the, in the boundary list, is right on the border between Judah and Benjamin. And in Judges chapter 1, we're told that, that Judah captured Jerusalem and burned it. That's probably referring to the defeat of Jerusalem in Joshua chapter 10. But then they went on to fight elsewhere. They didn't take possession of it. After all, if you burn a city down, you're not planning on taking possession of it. Because you're, you're not going to live in a burned city. So then later in Judges chapter 1, we're told the people of Benjamin could not drive out the Jebusites. Uh, apparently the Jebusites kept coming back and rebuilding. Jerusalem would remain a Jebusite city until the time of David. Now, we're not, we don't know exactly when the book of Joshua was written, but there's a definite clue here that Jerusalem is going to play an important role in Judah's future. Joshua provides us with a, a picture of our Lord Jesus. But Joshua is an incomplete picture of Jesus. And of course he's incomplete. If he were complete, we wouldn't need Jesus. Joshua will take possession of the land and cause Israel to inherit. David will capture Jerusalem and establish his throne. Solomon will build the temple in Jerusalem. Now, Jesus will do all of these things. But that's where this physical geography is pointing us to the spiritual geography of our Lord Jesus when the greater Joshua sat down at the right hand of the Father and caused us to inherit eternal life when the greater David established his throne in the heavenly Jerusalem when the one greater than Solomon entered the heavenly holy of holies and poured out his Holy Spirit upon the church because what the book of Joshua is pointing us to is what Jesus will accomplish and what it encourages us to do is remember that as Joshua has caused Israel to take possession of the land, and now Caleb and the rest of Israel is going forth to, to do the particular battle in particular cities, that's what our spiritual warfare is. Jesus has won the great victory. He has caused us to inherit eternal life. And now we are called to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. Because, of course, the way that our, our Lord teaches us to fight spiritual warfare is, is not by going out and fighting with, with weapons, and for that matter, not even fighting with words. The way that our Lord Jesus teaches us to, to fight our spiritual warfare is by the way of the cross, is by the way of denying ourselves, taking up our cross, following him with the confidence that he will continue the work that he has begun and bring it to, to its completion in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let us pray. Oh Lord our God, how we thank you and praise you for your, your great mercy in Jesus Christ. And, and Father, have mercy upon us for Jesus' sake. Have mercy on us and, and help us to, to see that what you began in the land, as you caused your people to take possession of, of the land, that you're now causing your people to take possession of the earth, that even now, as the gospel goes forth to the ends of the earth, even so, as, it, as it's taking root in South Bend and in Elkhart and Mishawaka and Granger and Niles, in all the places where you've put us, Lord, help us to live as those who belong to Jesus, that those around us might see in us and hear from us the glorious gospel of our Savior. May your kingdom 
continue to flourish. And may your gospel grow and increase in every place where we go. And Father, help us and have mercy on us in, in, our, in our sufferings and afflictions. Be with those, O oh Lord, who, who deal with, with physical ailments and troubles of, of, of body and, and of soul. Lord, have mercy upon, on those who, who struggle with, with depression and discouragement and anxiety. Lord, have mercy on those who, 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 who are troubled by temptation and, and who are torn from you. Grant, Lord, that you might restore them and help them and strengthen them. Be with those who, who are drifting and rescue them and, and bring them back. Lord, have mercy upon each of us in our several callings that in the work that you've given us to do, we might give honor and praise to the name of your Son, that we might show forth your great power in the way that we walk. Lord, have mercy upon us in our homes and help us to, to point one another to you in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, in our workplaces, in our schools, that in each place where you put us, that we would, that we would bear witness to Jesus in the way that we live, in the way that we go about our work, in the way that we go about our conversation, in the way that we show forth your love and your mercy to those who are perishing. Help us, Lord, and grant that, that, that those who walk in darkness might see the light of, of Jesus. That they, that they might believe just like Caleb did, that they might trust and obey and repent and believe and be baptized in the name of, of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, that your gospel would continue going forth in, to, in all lands and in every tongue. Lord, have mercy upon our brothers and sisters in Ukraine and grant your people there to have confidence in you, to trust you in the midst of their afflictions, in the midst of, of rumors of war, that you would, you would be gracious to your people and grant to them your peace, that even in the midst of these trials, that your gospel would continue to go forth with great power, that all the nations might know that Jesus is Lord. Free pray in his name. Amen.